It's good to have her back. And it's good to see what God is able to do. Well, we're going to pick back up with John. John is teaching me a lot. And I hope what he's teaching me that I can express it and share it with you. Because John is a very unique person. The more you dig into him, the more you look at him. Um, we just know him as John the Baptist, and oftentimes we read very quickly and we glean right on past. But sometimes we need to take a deeper look into a person's life. Yes, John was raised in a priestly family, but he's not a priest. He's not there in the temple working. He's out in the wilderness, a voice crying in the desert. There's something about John because this sermon leads into next week's sermon, into this area of understanding. Here's this John. Won't be next week, or next week will be third Sunday, and Pastor Travis or fourth Sunday. Here's this person that has to understand something about himself. And none of us like this. I must decrease that he might increase. In simple words, I must learn to die to myself that God can be exalted in my life, that Jesus Christ can be revealed in my life, that Jesus can be seen in my life. I have to learn how to die to myself. That goes against everything we stand for, basically. Because the most important person in my life is who? Me. And I'm going to do everything I can do in my life to protect me and elevate who? Me. I want the best for who? For me. And John reveals just the opposite. Here's a man who could have been known as a great prophet. No, I'm not a prophet. Here's a man who could have been known as Elijah. No, I'm not Elijah. Here's a man who could have said, yes, I am the Christ, but knowing he is not the Christ. John knew his purpose. And John knew how to live in his position that God ordained for him. And he accepted that. We use the phrase sometime today, get in your lane and stay where? In your lane. John also learned something else. Whatever a man has, it's only been given by God. Period. What a man has is only been given by God. And therefore for John, he understood that yes, there was one coming greater than he. 
einmal viel lernen. And he must become more. We must become less. And Jesus has to become more. If there's anything hurting the church today, is that life is all about who? Me. And not about Christ. If we don't understand this principle, then the ministry suffers. Go to Matthew 16. Look at verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone, that anyone includes who? All of us. If anyone would come after me, he must, what? Lord, you can't ask that of me. You don't know my ambitions. You don't know my title. You don't know what I really want to do for you. Lord, you can't ask me to deny myself. And God is asking us to deny ourselves that he might exalt us. Not that we would exalt ourselves, not that we would build ourselves. He's asking us to deny ourselves that he might do the building and the exalting in his time, in our lives. And he says, again, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will what? Will find it. You'll find real life when you deny yourself. You'll find the life that Christ has for you. You'll discover the plan that God has for your life. You'll recognize how good God is when you really deny yourself and accept what God has for you. And John understood that. That he had to die. And John's a great orator. John is somebody great. People are coming to hear him. They're traveling some distance. But John had to learn to deny himself. And understand. That he's only an instrument in God's hand. To be a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the one that is yet to come. Then over in John 3, 27, John understood this little principle, that is still sometimes that which people fight with. Because again, it's that thing that God has to become more. We have to become less. And he simply says it this way, and where am I? In John 3, in verse 27, he says, To this John replied, A man can have only what is given him from where? From heaven. 
Never be envious of another person. Never be jealous of another person. Why? Right now you have what God wants you to have. And he that is faithful in little, God will give him what? Give him much. But first, understand this. Learn to be faithful with the little you have. Learn to be faithful with the little responsibility you have. Learn how to make it work with the little you have as God shows you. And if you're faithful with the little and not a complainer because of what you don't have, God will be the one who will bless. God will give. God will open doors. God will do the promotion. God promotes us. He knows us. He knows where he wants us to be. And we have to understand that. To be in the position in which God has called you to be. Let me give you a couple of things happening in my life. I can talk about them now because they're all past. One day my wife was at council and she's looking for me. And I've been working with the denomination for some time. And some men had got this great idea. Let's put Gus Brown's name in as vice president of the CMA. And boy, when she finally caught up with me and told me and I met with the men, it was very easy to say no. To say no. Then, after being president of the ethnic groups of the African-American group in the CMA, I was asked again, Gus, would you consider being vice president over international groups, the ethnic groups here in the United States? No. And and, And Joe Kong, who I recommended, did an excellent job. And then when something else came to me, And I said, it's still no. Based on one thing, and one thing only, God called me to pastor. And I knew what I was supposed to do. Not sit in the office, not to draw stats together, not to try to oversee something else, but the pastor. And I can't tell you how rewarding that has been in my life to just do that. I remember Professor, uh, Dr. Boone said, Gus, you ought to be a professor. And then Brother Thomas, who was here at the church with us, he said, Gus, you ought to go and be a professor. You ought to be a teacher. I said, I am. Know your place. Know your position. And rejoice in it. That God can use you in that. If God really wants you somewhere else, he'll burden your heart. He'll lift you up. He'll give you everything around you that you have need of to do that. You don't have to knock down doors. You don't have to make this happen. You don't have to run after that. God somehow miraculously just does it. 
Many work hard to build their name. And many of us work hard to build a reputation only to discover they have to decrease. Isn't that something? Every four years or eight years, as much as you put into it to run for presidency, eventually you have to hand that mantle off to somebody else. You have to see somebody else being called the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. You have to hear somebody else called president. You have to hear somebody else called the leader of the free world. All those little entitlements that they put upon you, eventually you have to walk away from and somebody else takes them over. And you can spend a lifetime building something. But the wise man knows this. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. You climb the hill and you hit a peak. But just like a helium bloom, it rises up, and if you let it stay up there for a couple of days, what begins to happen? It comes down. That is life. That is life. That is life. You hit heights, but yet you also know you're going to come down. Each person has to watch another increase as he begins to decrease. It's just part of life. You ride high only for a moment. Only for a short time in life. And then you begin to decrease. You begin to decrease. A person of wisdom understands this is going to pass. It's not going to last forever and ever and ever. It's not something that's going to go on. Go to uh, Ecclesiastic 9 with me. Because I think John fully understood this. And all of us need to understand this also. Ecclesiastic 9.5, he says, For the living know that they will die. Now understand that. Guess what? You don't have to graduate from high school to understand that. You don't need a BA. You don't need a master. You don't need a doctor's degree. All you have to do is live and you'll understand it and you'll have the knowledge that one day you're going to what? One of the things I do at a funeral, I always share one thing that is appointed unto every man wants to die. Here's the evidence <laughs> that none of us can deny. And he simply says, boy, for the living know, they're not guessing about it. They know this. And everyone in this room know it. We just don't like to think about it. America is one of the worst countries that prepares to die. All we do is prepare to live. We don't prepare to die. And we're beginning to discover that more and more here in America. 
that people don't have life insurance. People don't prepare to take care of their last thing in life that's going to happen to them. Because we don't prepare to die. We do more preparation for living than it is dying. And he says, but the dead know nothing. That's true. They know nothing. And he says, they have no further rewards. And even the memory of them is what? John, guess what? Man, one day the people are praising you, and a few days after you're dead, they're not giving you a second thought. After you're gone. I was sitting on the chair and where I have my devotion sometime in the morning and uh, I'm trying to read through this one huge book, The Lifetime of Jesus, before I die. I, uh, I'm trying to read all the way through it and sometimes I get my sermons even out of it and so forth or my thoughts out of it. And I'm trying to get completely through this book. It's a good-sized book. It's really thick and and I lived, but I looked over at my mom and dad. Their picture there. Both are gone. Thank you, Lord, for mom and dad. The other day, boy, Lay and I, she was laying in the bed, and she just started talking about her mother. But see, how many of our children will talk about their grandmother? How many will the great-grandchildren talk about their great-grandmother or great-grandmother? Because when we go to the grave, it doesn't take long for us to be forgotten. And John knows he's going to be forgotten at some point. We all need to realize that. Go over to Psalms 31. Psalms 31. And understanding that, boy, we need to be busy. Look at verses 14 and 15 in 31. He says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I trust in who? The Lord. I say, You are my God. I may not understand everything, but you're my God. And we're going to see John saying that. He says it in this fashion. I didn't know him, but the one who sent me told me this, this, and that. And he's trusting the one who sent him. But I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. My time, boy, put that underline. My times are where at? In your hands. God says he's already numbered your days. He knows how long he's given you life. Our time is in his hands. He may extend it, or he may shorten it. He says, my times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. But my time, Lord, no matter what my situation is, whatever's going on in life, my time is in your hands. 
I had that with cancer. When the doctor came in and told me, Gus, if things don't change in the next 24 hours, there's little hope. Lord, most that night, just prayer. And next day, we just begin to see things change little by little. We saw that with our son Gus's life. When we thought we was going to lose him. Two years old. Was he quite two then? Children's Hospital. And we said, Lord, teach us what you want us to do. You've given him to us. We give him back to you. Went in the hospital. He had been unconscious for about a week, week and a half. He come out of an unconscious state. He looked up at his mom and he said, Hi, mom! And went right back into a coma. And we said, Okay, Lord, you want us to just start witnessing here in the hospital. And that's what we started doing. And the Lord took us from Children's Hospital to the Children's Hospital up in Cleveland, uh, up in Chicago. And again, God just opened doors. A little girl who wouldn't eat nothing but spinach, and she was starving herself to death, they gave Gus a tricycle to just go around on into the rooms. He got that little girl to eat more than spinach, we bought a number of Spanish-speaking Bibles. We went down to Moody and got Bibles to think how we were ministering to the Spanish people. What that little guy was doing was only God and what he did in our life. He says, my time is where at? In your hands. And then in Ephesians 5.16, he's speaking about Take every opportunity in life. Take the opportunity to serve God. Take every opportunity to minister to people. Take that opportunity that is there and use it wisely. And that's John. Because John don't know how long he's going to live. But John, take every opportunity and preach this gospel. Preach what has been given to you. Preach it. What is it that helped John to understand that he must decrease? And I believe what brought John to this place of understanding, you and I have to come to this place of understanding. I think also for a lot of people, we sung this song, He's Our Victory, and we're victorious because of him. But a lot of Christians are not living in a victorious life. They're living in a defeated life. They're living in a life that they're constantly struggling with. They're living in a life with a lot of pain and hurt. They're living in a life with very little hope. Oh, yes, they've accepted Christ. But he has not become their victor. That they have victory in life. 
seeing Jesus more than a man, I think is one of John's first steps towards understanding. He must decrease and he must increase. For you and I to first really grapple with and understand who Jesus Christ really is helps us to decrease and for him to increase. But you never wrestle with that. You never give thought to that. Oh, he's my Savior, and off you go. It will hurt you. Go to 1 Corinthians 5.16 with me. 1 Corinthians 5.16. Paul says, boy, um, I think it's 2 Corinthians, not 1st. It's 2 Corinthians 5.16. Put 1st in there. He said, yes, 2 Corinthians 5.16. It's how you perceive the Lord. It's how you see him. If you don't see him as your healer, most likely you'll never be healed. If you don't see him really as your savior, not just the savior of your soul, but the one who constantly delivers you from situations, you won't really see him as savior. If you don't see him as the one who guides you through life, you won't really follow him. He, he says, this is what Paul says, he says in that verse 16, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point. And what he's doing, he saw Jesus just as a what? As a mere man. And sometimes scripture tells us, be careful who you're entertaining, because you may be entertaining a what? An angel. But we just regard people as people. We, we see them dressed and we're listening to them, but we really don't know. Is this really a messenger of God? Is this something special? Is this a... God divine appointment time? Is this something that God's trying to speak to me or share something with me? He said, I had to learn not to regard men just as what? As men. He said, I saw Jesus just as a man. Nothing more. And he, and he goes on in that and he simply says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We do so no longer. I think John had a different glimpse of his cousin. And I think he mentions that in text, and I'll bring it out to you. And he begins to see him differently. Go to John chapter 1 with with me, St. John chapter 1, and go to verse uh, 29, because see, he's called something here. He's called the Lamb of God, and understand something. This is not a name I believe that John just picked for him. This is a name that God gave him, because he would be the living sacrifice for our sins. And John recognizes him as what? The Lamb of God. 
So when we read that verse 29, he says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God. Now look at something else that John really has to wrestle with. And the people around John has to wrestle with this. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who take away the sin of the world. And he's called the Lamb of God. And the people said, they knew what a lamb sometimes was for, but this is a human being. He's going to become a living sacrifice. They have to wrestle with that. And he's going to take away the sin. Now, let me bring out something to you. Sin here is singular, not plural. Let me bring it out now to you. John dealt with one sin. And, and that is the sins that we would confess. I'm an adulterer, I'm a thief, I'm a liar, I'm this, I'm that. But understand this. John couldn't do anything with those sins. He got the people confessing them, yes. He got the people seeing themselves as individuals with sin. But John couldn't deal with the sin. Although John preached repentance of sin, and the other part he couldn't deal with either. Forgiveness. That had to come from who? From God. Jesus is coming on this scene. And he says in this text, he's going to deal with sin. What is the first sin that has to be dealt with in man's life? His sin of unbelief. His sin of unbelief. And it's singular there. Because the sin that Jesus is going to deal with is something completely, as far as man is concerned, is going to be something new. Because, see, do you believe that I'm the Son of Man? Do you believe I'm the Son of God? Do you believe that I'm the Savior? And as many as come to him and believe, he gave them power to become the sons of God. Because of what? They believed on him. That's that beginning part. first part that man he has to deal with. Do I believe or don't I believe? Now understand this because it's just like in the days of Israel and in the days of old we all believe in God don't we? (laughs) But we all don't believe in the Savior Jesus Christ. There's where it separates when it comes to the name of Jesus, why? There's no other name given under heaven and earth whereby men must be what? Saved. No other name. Only through Jesus Christ, he's the only one who deals really with my sin, my sin of unbelief, one, and then our sins.
John, in a sense, dealt with our sins. And now we confess them. Because he, at that point, is only dealing with who? God. Not so much Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that is what? Coming. But Jesus deals with our unbelief about him, but then also with our daily what? Sins. And a lot of Christians, they dealt with the first one. Oh, I believe in Jesus. But they don't allow him to deal with them with the sins in their life. And sins destroy. Sins rob you. Sins take from you. Understand this. Satan, boy, he's upset when you accept the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one. But if he can keep you sidelined and keep you just sitting doing nothing and keep you from growing in Christ, keep you from adding to your faith because scripture tells us in Peter, add to your faith. There's things you have to do now to add to your faith to help you to grow. I believe in Christ. You're just like that person in Corinthians was just making it through the fire but had nothing. You're like that person which in 2 Timothy speaks about. You're in the house, but you're unworthy to be there. You're only there by the name of Christ. Why? Because if you cry out to Christ and accept the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Period. If you never grow again, if you never do anything else again, the question is, was the heart sincere at that moment when you accepted Christ? Why? My God is not a liar. If you do that one thing, you're saved. Now, the life of a Christian begins to grow or should. And what we're finding out, a lot are not growing. A lot are not adding to their life. A lot of them are just individuals who sit, I'm saved, and watch their life. They're just like if they're in the world. And the Lord says, be in the world, but be not what? Don't let the world condition your mind. Don't let the world condition how you live. Don't allow the world to be your main teacher. Seeing Jesus as more than just a man, John is seeing him as more, much more. And he says, he was before me in the text here. Will you come on now? He, 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 he has to struggle with that in verse 30. He comes down and he says, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me 
has surpassed surpassed me because he was before me. No, no, John, you got that wrong. John's dealing with something here that the other people have to deal with too. Which one is oldest? Who's the older one here? John. John's older. By the physical part, John's at least six months older. So John would be the older one. So who's first? John. So John said, he was before me. The only way he could be before me is if he existed before I did. And John is seeing him in his pre-incarnate days before he ever took on this fleshly body. John is understanding that this cousin of mine, I'm not older than he is. He is what? Older than I am. So that when Jesus says to the Pharisees, even Abraham rejoiced, and they look at him and say, huh, you're just a youngster yet. And Jesus is saying, I am before Abraham ever was. And they couldn't figure that one out. And again, what are we talking about? The pre-existence. Until you wrestle with that Jesus really did exist before he took on this human body, you will bring him alongside of yourself rather than seeing him exalted and seeing him as God and understanding, yes, he must increase in my life while I decrease in life because he was, he is, before me. And John makes that statement. And he deals with that. And the people around him have, have to struggle with it too. Because many of them knew Jesus as the carpenter's son. They knew him as what? Oh, the son of Mary. They're hearing something coming from John's mouth that they have to struggle that this individual pre-existed before he ever was born. He's struggling with it. But John recognized that. And I think he can say, yes. He must increase, I must decrease. Third thing John says in 31. He says, I don't know him. So in in verse 31 he says, I myself did not know him. All right, John, this is your cousin. You had to know him, man. You had to play with him, man. You guys only six months apart, man. No, you have to know your cousin. No. How many of you have cousins that you don't know? How many of you have relatives you don't know? So there is a possibility that 
John really didn't know Jesus as his cousin or whatever, but here again, I think Scripture lets us know in the sense that, yeah, John may have known Jesus because of the relationship of Elizabeth and Mary. But I think John is saying here in this statement, I didn't know him in his pre-existence state. I didn't know him in his pre-existence state. I didn't know him. By what follows helps me to understand that. He says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except, there's that word except, I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. So John's getting some information that others didn't have. John's being told some things about this one who pre-existed that told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what John says in 14. And I'm sorry, in 34. I have seen and I testify. I have seen and I testify. Now what did John see? John saw the dove, which represented the Holy Spirit, come and what? Land on Jesus. John may have heard also the voice that followed. This is my beloved son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. Let me share something with you. And I want you to take this to heart. The Bible is not the greatest witness of God. That is not to belittle the Bible. The Bible is a testimony about God. not the greatest witness of God. Nowhere in scripture will you find that the Bible is really the witness of God. But the scripture says, you are my witness. We are. You are. I want you to apply that to John. John said, I have seen and I testify. What can you testify about what God has done in your life? What personal thing can you really say 
God did it. God touched me. God worked. Because you are the real true witnesses. And that's why Paul said that you are read by men the way you live and the way you believe and the way you allow yourself to carry the values and principles of Scripture of the living God. People look at and you and they're able to see it in your life. And that's what becomes real. Why? You are that living testament that is walking and breathing for the Lord. And John says, I've seen, I testify. I've seen, I testify. What have you seen and what are you testifying of? What have you seen and what are you sharing? What is it that you really know personally where God has pulled you to the side and spoke to you personally? What has God whispered to you that nobody else knows? See, one thing about God is this. He's a relational God. He's a God who wants to be in a relationship with us. A relationship. with each and every one of you. Why? He wants you to know him, as Paul says. I know in whom I have what? Do you really know that? Do you really know the one you believe in? Do you really know the one you're trusting in? The worst thing you could ever do is go out of this place talking about what Pastor Brown said rather than what Scripture says. Because the most important thing is this, is that God speaks to you in a very personal way. That you know this living God. Thing about being saved is this, and I'll close. When you have to persuade somebody that they're saved, most likely, they are what? That's right. If you're saved, you know it. If you're really saved, you know if your love for the Lord is growing. If you're really saved and you understand who Jesus Christ is, You understand, you have a responsibility to lift him up by doing what? Denying self. You understand what scripture says when it says he is preeminent. He's what? He's first above everything else. Look at the church and he becomes almost last. Rather than being first. We put everything before him, everything before his kingdom, everything before his church. But yet he says he's preeminent. When you hold him as preeminent, it's very easy to put your life down here and go after the things that are important to him. 
that shows the increase of the lifting up of Jesus. The exaltation of Jesus in your life. The love of Jesus in your life. The desire to serve him. I spoke at a funeral just a few days ago, and one of the things I shared about the woman was this, that had deceased. Not only was she saved, but she understood her responsibility as a servant. A lot of us are saved, but don't serve. But you've been saved to serve. And that's a responsibility that each one of us have to own and accept and do. Nobody here on earth can make you do it. I will never tell you you're not serving the Lord. Why? You're not mine. But if you hear God say to you, do, do, do. Remember Paul? Lord, what would you have me to do? Remember the jailer? What should I do? And you'll find that people say, what should I do? What are you doing that exalts the Lord? And John says, I must decrease. I think John understood it. I think he's in that word, in that fashion of saying to us, yes, we all must what? Decrease. And he must what? Increase. Amen? Father, we have so much yet to learn and so much more yet to discover in your word. Because your word is a treasure. We can pull this out and we think we've pulled out the greatest thing. And we open it up again and Lord, we pull out another treasure. We think sometime, Lord, we got the biggest golden nugget we'll ever find. And then, Lord, we find another. We rejoice over the diamond that we find and the diamond that we receive. But then we find another and another. Because, Lord, you continue to reveal yourself to us. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand that though John dealt with sin and the forgiveness of sin in the area of repentance, Jesus Christ gives us the privilege, as the word says, to take away sin. We hear him in scripture when he says to those, go and sin no more because sin will destroy life. And things could be worse off than what they were. Go and sin no more. And how does he handle our sin? He's right there with us to wrestle with it. And we have the privilege of putting it under the blood and turning from it. And when we turn from it, he'll wash us, he'll cleanse us from it. And 
Lord, we do need a cleansing. We need, O oh God, to place our sins under the blood of Jesus Christ. Understanding there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. That we can understand that he alone has the ability to truly forgive us. And he demonstrates that in the healing of the paraclete. That he has more than just the forgiveness of sin, but he can say, get up and walk. And he can tell us to come out of our sin, let loose of our sin, and walk uprightly with him. Help us to do that, Lord. And Father, may we anew commit ourselves to you. Commit ourselves to you because we know who Jesus really is. He's our Savior. He's not just a story in a book. He's just not a myth. He's not just something we've heard about from childhood to adulthood. But I know him for myself. I've seen him work in my life. And I'm not ashamed of him. And therefore, I give testimony and I testify of what he has done. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.